Amen, amen. Grab a seat. King David uh, had a son named Solomon, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you know a bit of the story of Solomon. Uh, Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, and Lord, the Lord gave him wisdom um, just generously. And Solomon used that wisdom to uh, lead uh, the nation of Israel into a time of great prosperity. But uh, if you know Solomon's story, you know uh, kind of the trajectory of where his life went. That uh, with the accumulation of his great knowledge and the accumulation, and the accumulation of his great wealth, and uh, he, he accumulated uh, many, many wives and uh, wives from foreign places that worshipped other gods. And Solomon's life went off the rails a bit. Uh, Solomon wrote a book we have in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And uh, don't turn there yet, but I just, I want to, um, I want to highlight something. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, I always picture um, uh, Solomon as an old man sitting on his porch, just kind of thinking back and writing about his life. And um, uh, Ecclesiastes begins right from the outset with kind of the recurring theme you find throughout the book. And he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then Solomon spends 12 chapters of the Bible just like, yeah, I pursued that, thought that would bring a lot of satisfaction, meaningless. And so I pursued that, thought that would be really cool, meaningless. And so I went after that, and I thought, you know what, that'll fulfill me, that'll satisfy, meaningless. And he just, throughout the whole book, he's just like, if you want to pursue satisfaction in this, you're going to find that to be vanity and meaningless. And like, by the time you get to the halfway point of studying the book of Ecclesiastes, you're like, okay, my life is just meaningless and means nothing. And it's, it's interesting, though, that at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after his entire book on like, this was meaningless, this was meaningless, that didn't fulfill, that didn't satisfy. Um, we find one, one pointed statement at the end, of a book, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And right at the end, after writing all that he does, well advanced in years and full of the wisdom that God has given him, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, this whole concept of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, all through the Bible we find this uh, expression of the fear of the Lord or of fearing God. And I don't know about you, but for me, like I could probably take the Bible and I could probably put all those verses together and all of the parts of the Bible where it talks about fearing God, and I could probably write a decent like paper about it, academic kind of theological doctrinal take on like, here's what the fear of the Lord is, and here's what Scripture says are the blessings of those who fear the Lord, but I'll just like transparently and honestly throughout my, ent my, my entire life, as I've been confronted with the concept of the fear of the Lord, practically I've always struggled to grasp, like, what does that really look like in my life? What does it mean for me to live with a fear of the Lord? And it's such an important concept in Scripture, and it's actually a topic that's brought up in uh, the very end of the book of Malachi that we study today. So if you have a Bible, get to Malachi, the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. We're finishing our series uh, called The Revive, Six Wake-Up Calls for Our Faith in the book of Malachi. We finished that series this morning. 
Um, and it just kind of a, a quick background. Malachi is structured in a really kind of consistent way. There's six disputes. And what, uh, what we mean by disputes is um, six times God comes to his people, the Israelites, throughout the book of Malachi. And he says, um, he says, he says something uh, to call out, to, to call them out on their waywardness, on their, far, uh, their hearts that are far from him. And God will call them out in a specific way. And six times, God's people, the Israelites, will say, who, us? What are you talking about? What do you mean, what do you mean that we have wandered away from you? What do you mean in what you are saying here? And six times, God will say, let me tell you what I mean. And these are these six disputes, the, what we're calling six wake-up calls, that God has a conversation with his people. And today, we look at this sixth and final dispute uh, between God and between his people here. And we see this dispute brought to the surface here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and we'll, this will lead us into this conversation of the fear of the Lord here today. Malachi three thirteen. The Lord says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so the Lord says, listen, you're saying some hard things against me. You're saying some things that are not honoring to me. And the people go, what are you talking about? What are we saying that's not honoring to you? And he says, when you say... What does it profit to serve God? Basically, the people are saying, what do I gain from serving God? Like, how is this working out for us, this whole serving God thing? And, and then the Lord says, and then when you say the evildoers prosper, they put God to the test and they escape. God just looks the other way. He does nothing with their evil. He doesn't worry about them. He says, when you say these things against me, like it is so dishonoring to me. And this is what the people are saying, and this is what the Lord is calling out in them right now. Now, how is the Lord going to address this? How is he going to address this whole notion of um, the people saying, it doesn't gain us anything to serve God? And how is he going to address this issue of like the people saying, listen, evildoers, they're just doing their thing, they're prospering, and God doesn't care, they escape, God's not worried about it. God, through the rest of the book of Malachi, is going to kind of interwovenly, connectedly, talk about this idea of the fear of the Lord and how it plays, how it, kind of, how do, how it pertains to this whole concept of the day of the Lord. And as God begins to address the accusations of these people, look at a group of people amongst the entire community that he introduces us to, that we've not been introduced to throughout the whole book. This whole book, Malachi's been painting this picture of the waywardness of all of God's people. They've wandered from him. Their hearts are far from him. But here we are in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, and God begins to introduce us to a remnant amongst the whole community that, that are there. Look at what the first six words of Malachi 3, 16 say. It says, then those who, and what are the next three words? Okay, there's hope. 
there's hope. That we've just spent an entire book of the Bible with God addressing how far and away and how hard-hearted his people are in this season. How they are not worship, worshiping him rightly and in the way he deserves. But now as we come down to the end, we are told that there's a remnant, there's a pocket, there's a small group of people who've kept their heart soft, who've kept their, who've kept their heart near. And he, said, he, he tells us here, then those who feared the Lord. And this is going to lead us into a discussion today, right from that point to the end of the book, um, with kind of the three questions you have on your notes if you got them when you walked in. What, what in the world is this whole fear of the Lord thing? What in the world does this whole day of the Lord thing, and how does that inform or interact with us living with the fear of the Lord? And then what's at stake for those who do or do not fear the Lord. And so that's where God's going to lead us here today. And so if you would pray with me, and then we'll let God's word speak. Father, um, Lord, I feel so inadequate to preach on the fear of the Lord. Um, Lord, throughout this week, just I confess to you where you have shown me where I, I don't live in a proper fear. Um, Lord, there's so much of this passage that still continues to need to do work in my own heart, and, and Lord, that's always uncomfortable to climb the steps to preach when um, there's a ton of work in your own heart to do on the, the topic you're preaching, and so, um, Lord, I'm thankful that um, the power in preaching does not rest on the, the, the feebleness of the preacher, but on the authority and the power of your word, and so, Lord, would you, the authority of your word go out right now? God, would it accomplish in each and every heart that which you set out to accomplish God, would you speak to us, Lord, please? We are here because we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. God, we live on your word. It is our, it is our bread we feast on. And so, God, would you feed us a great meal from your word here today, a meal that will sustain us through our week until we gather here again for um, uh, more feasting corporately on your word next Sunday. So, God, please speak in power through your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jump back into verse 16, and let's begin to unpack this whole fear of the Lord thing. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And so let's just stop there because there's some beautiful things that this verse brings out here. That within the midst of the entire congregation of God's people, you have this remnant, this pocket of people who are fearing the Lord. And it says, um, those who feared the Lord, they spoke together and the Lord paid attention. The Lord looked down on them. The Lord heard them. They had favor before the Lord. It says a book of remembrance was written before the Lord of those who feared him. And it says, and they esteemed his name. That means they esteemed him as their highest prize. They esteemed him so highly that they, had seen, that they esteemed nothing higher than him. This is what God-fearers do. They esteem the name of the Lord higher than any other name. They hold him as the treasure of their heart. And it just, it just leads us into this first question on yours. What does it mean for me to fear the Lord? 
What does this mean? Because I think this can be a really hard concept for us to grasp. Why? Often, I mean, think, well, none of us in the room particularly love to feel fearful. Right? Unless some of you twisted people who like horror movies for the fun of it, right? But like none of us love the emotion of fear. We, we often will do whatever it takes to avoid feeling fear. Um, when we think about that which makes us fearful, like if we just stop to think, okay, when, are, when were there times in your life you were gripped by fear? Those are negative things. They're bad things. We were gripped by fear when we were worried that some evil was going to win out, when something bad was going to happen, when we were stepping into the unknown of something. So often as we think about this word fear, like all of the negative emotions swirl around what that word fear means. Just think about times in your life you've been gripped by fear. This week, preparing for this, um, I, I, it brought me back to a couple instances in my own life. I was about seven years old, riding my bike down the road. I still remember what this felt like. I was riding my bike down the sidewalk at our, near our little house we had in town. And this man pulled his car up right next to me in my bike and just began to stare at me and kind of drive along with me as I was riding. It was as creepy as it sounds. And in my little seven-year-old brain, I dropped my bike on the road and I ran home. I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't ride my bike home. That would have made a lot more sense. But I dropped my bike right there on the road and I ran all the way home, just completely gripped by fear. Um, I thought about um, putting on a good front when I got in my car to drive to college, a good front amongst my family, smile, like acting like I was excited. But I remember the fear that gripped me as my fingers gripped the steering wheel driving off into the unknown. Uh, the birth of our first son, an emergency C-section, and uh, the nurses running Erica's hospital bed down the hallway as I was chasing after the bed, trying to put those operating room scrub things on and I just remember when I finally stopped running and I was standing at the head of her bed, I was completely numb in fear. Just, is she okay? Is the baby okay? What's going on? Why were we running? I don't like when doctors run. <laughs> um, and, um, and to just remember the fear. And so if, if you think in your own life about times you've been gripped by fear, then we come to this concept of the fear of the Lord and you can go like, man, how does that work? And yet... Let me kind of unpack a definition and then let's talk about how the fear of the Lord is fundament fundamentally different than any other fear we might have experienced in this world. And so I just want to unpack this statement that I put together this week to kind of help work us through what do we, what do we need to understand about the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a recognition of God's ultimacy. It has to start there. The fear of the Lord recognizes, God, you are ultimate. You are the highest authority. You are the one who created all of this. And not only did you create it, Lord, you're sustaining it. You've redeemed it. 
Lord, you're the one who's sustaining me. God is the one sustaining you in your seat right now and sustaining me as I stand up here. God is filling our lungs with air. And if God in his sovereignty would not want to allow the next breath to come, then it wouldn't. God is completely ultimate. God answers to no one. And oh, how comforting that is. But a a proper fear of the Lord, it begins with a recognition of God's ultimacy. And then once once we live with this recognition that God is completely ultimate, that leads to something. It leads to us counting him as our highest treasure. Once we see God for who he is, completely ultimate, he answers to no one. He is the creator of all. All of creation stands in accountability to him. It leads to him going like, Lord, for us to treasure anything else more than you, it's just, it's just idolatry because there's no one, there's no one else who is worthy of being the treasure of our heart. And this, this is this, what the fear of the Lord gripping our heart does. It's like, Lord, you are ultimate. And ultimately, I'm accountable to you. And Lord, I want to treasure you higher than anything else. And oh, by the way, like it's easy for me to say that I treasure God, but I just know that my actions, uh, what stirs my affections, ultimately reveals that which I treasure. And so it's easy for me to say like, hey, I'm a pastor you know, of course I treasure God. I was even convicted uh, yesterday morning. Um, I was at Starbucks, you know, reading through the message and, you know, pretty, pretty excited to gather here uh, today to preach it and to worship with y'all. But then I had to ask a question. <clears throat> you know, this whole March Madness thing is pretty refining for a sports guy, right? I had to ask a question. Rock, are you more excited about Michigan State's game tonight than you are about gathering to worship Jesus tomorrow? Uh, but Lord, you know, it's a sweet 16 birth on the line, you know? Don't come around every weekend. I, I, just, I just confessing, like, you know, it's easy for me to say with my mouth, I treasure the Lord, but, but like if my affections... As I like read my Bible and I'm spending time with the Lord, are kind of at a five. But then when I'm watching my favorite sports team play at night, I'm at like a 9.75, which my wife would tell you, you know, I can get there. Last night, the Spartans hit a big shot. I jumped off off the couch and I said, boom. And my wife sitting on the couch just looked at me and she just goes, I just was challenged to go like, man, like it's not just with the words of my lips that I say I treasure God. Like, what do I find stirring the affections of my heart? So the fear of the Lord is this recognition, God, you are ultimate. There is no one or nothing higher than you. And once I realize this, once my heart's gripped in awe and reverence that you are ultimate, this will make, Lord, I will want, like I will be so stirred in my heart for you to be my highest treasure. And then once God is my highest treasure. I begin to live with a reverent passion to please him in all things. Ultimately, this is where the fear of the Lord always gets. The fear of the Lord always produces obedience in our life. 
Because like we just see, we just see him for his goodness. And we just say, like, I want my life to live in accordance. I want to pursue, I want to pursue holiness and righteousness, and I want to reject and run away from evil. And I just um, um uh, Paul, let's go to that Proverbs 8 verse. I just want to show that Proverbs 8 verse, uh, that next one if I can. Um the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning with this one. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Like, how does that work? Well, when we are living with such a reverent fear of who God is, it means like we want to resist and run from that which God hates and that which God abhors. We want to live in line with that. And so, if the fear of the Lord is recognition of God's ultimacy uh, that leads to us counting him as our highest pride, living with a reverent passion to please him. Now let's talk about how this fear is fundamentally different than every other fear that has gripped our hearts as we've walked this earth. Often fear as we know it here, it's a fear of evil happening to us or the people we love. It's the fear of the unknown, like we don't know what we're walking into. It's the fear, it's negative, it's bad, it's evil. The fear of the Lord is none of those. It is not a fear that is, uh, uh, it's not a fear that is dark or unclean. The fear of the Lord is a clean fear. The fear of the Lord is a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is a refining fear. The fear of the Lord is a purifying fear. The fear of the Lord is seeing God and all the goodness for who he is and living in accordance with that. The fear of the Lord is the fear that remedies every other fear that you've experienced. The fear of the Lord is the refining fire that makes in your heart the purity of heart that God wants us to have. The fear of the Lord is the greatest blessing that we can ever live with. John Piper says it best. What is, he's like, what is this whole concept of the fear of the Lord? He says, God is a terrifying force to be running away from, but a sweet refuge to draw near to. Think about that. Scripture commands us to fear the Lord, and Scripture simultaneously commands us to take refuge in him. How sweet is that? That's how fundamentally different the fear of the Lord is than any other fear we've experienced here. If we, uh, Take all of the bad things we fear and you say, go take refuge in that bad thing that you fear. We would never take refuge in that. And yet the purifying force of the fear of the Lord, the awe and the reverence of who he is, his ultimacy, we take refuge in that. We say, Lord, hide us in your hand right there. And it is an awesome, awesome thing. So the fear of the Lord, it starts with this recognition of his ultimacy, which leads to us counting him as our highest treasure. And this leads to us living with a reverent passion to please him. And now listen, I'm, you know, I would encourage you this week in your quiet time with the Lord to do a study from the word of all of the things God says about the fear of the Lord. And the blessings that come with it. There is no way that like a 35 to 40 minute sermon can get at it. There's no way that that nice little definition that we've put on the slide there of what the fear of the Lord is can adequately summarize all of the things that encapsulate what it means to fear the Lord. I mean, um, I, I built that definition this week. So, so take it for what it's worth, right? You know, give it the weight that you uh, think it should have. Um, but go study that on your own this week.
the beautiful blessings of the fear of the Lord. Now, often, not always, but a fair amount in Scripture, when you find this concept of the fear of the Lord, you will find somewhere nearby um, a discussion of the day of the Lord. Now, what in the world is the day of the Lord? And how does that interact with this idea of the fear of the Lord? From here, from starting in Malachi 3, verse 17, through the end of the book, the day or a reference to the day of the Lord is going to happen five times. And so as Malachi closes this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants to emphasize this whole idea of the day of the Lord. What in the world is the day of the Lord? So let's read this here, verse 17. They shall be mine. Uh, he's talking about this group of God-fearers. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, second time it's talked about. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Third time, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You're like, what? I don't know what that feels like, right? What in the world does it mean? You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's this beautiful picture. Um, remember, agrarian farming society uh, in West Michigan, our family had a little, uh, little dairy farm, uh, 60, 70 dairy cows, and it was always cool when a calf was born. And uh, once a calf got a little bit older, uh, you, would take it, you could take it out of the barn. And as kids, it was always fun to take the calves out of the barn and out of the stall. And when a calf would get outside and for the first time, like out of the barn, out of the stall, it would begin to be very skittish and very timid at first. But then once it was comfortable, remember, a calf's just a little kid. You just start taking off all over the yard, leaping and jumping and just playing around. Like, this is the picture here. Like, as, as God would have wrote, written that to the people, they're like, oh, yeah, we know what it's like when a calf gets outside a stall for the first time. The thing goes crazy. It's just like celebrating the freedom and the joy of what it meant. Like, this is what God said. You're going to be like uh, leap calves leaping from the stall. And uh, verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on fourth time, the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Five references to the day as Malachi ends. So what do I need to know about the day of the Lord? Listen, because it's really important that we understand for every single heart in here what God is talking about when he's talking about the day of the Lord. So I should have made a slide for this, but I didn't. But the day of the Lord, 
The day of the Lord is a time set apart by God when he will intervene decisively for judgment or salvation. The day of the Lord is a time set apart by God when he will intervene decisively for judgment, for final judgment, for those who've rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ, rejected um, uh, walking with God, have rejected and and are continuing to live in um, sin. He will come and he will intervene decisively for final judgment for some and then final salvation for those who have drawn near to Christ in faith and who have uh, come to walk in relationship with God. This is this coming day of the Lord. And scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, talk about this future day of the Lord when God will come and he will intervene decisively and justice will, um, be, uh, will be finally won out. Remember, Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven and he came the first time. And he was born and he was born on a rescue mission and he was then crucified and he was resurrected and then he ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's ruling and he's reigning But then, uh, church, um, our great hope, uh, he's coming back again one day, amen? And remember what the people, remember their accusation against God. What do we gain from serving you? Their focus was so temporal. It was so like, God, if I serve you today, I want something from you tomorrow. Like by my definite, like, God, I just served you three hours ago. What are you going to do for me now? And he's like, no, 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 let's talk about the day of the Lord that's coming one day. Let's talk about when the Savior comes back in glory. Remember their second accusation? These evildoers, they're just doing whatever they want. Lord, they're putting you to the test, and it's like you're turning a blind eye, and they just get to escape and go do what they want. And the Lord says, no, 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 let's talk about the day of the Lord. Because uh, God and his goodness and his justice uh, will come. And this, this day of the Lord is when he'll intervene decisively for final judgment against evil and final salvation for those who tr- trust and who know Christ. And this is like what we need to know about the day of the Lord. And folks, listen, this day is coming and it will happen. Paul wrote about it all the time. Think about why Paul's minds would have been, and eyes would have been so on the day of the Lord. Because every city he walked into and would be obedient to Jesus and share the gospel, he'd get punched in the teeth for it. And he'd get beaten for it. And he would just be like, but listen, that's okay. And I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to walk back into another city and I'm going to get punched in the mouth again. But guess what? It's okay because my entire hope is on this day when Jesus is going to come back. Like my whole hope is on that. And folks, our whole hope as Jesus followers, what do we gain from serving Jesus? We're going to find out in its fullness when we're standing before him and we see our Savior with our own eyes and it's going to be sweet church and we just persist in whatever it is God has called us to right now knowing that that day is coming but um, uh, this leads to this third question and this third question is really important it's important for every heart in here it's important for you if you're here and you don't know Jesus this third question has massive implications for you and it's important for you if you do know Jesus so what is at stake for those who do or do not fear the Lord what's at stake 
Just look at what this passage said about this. Go back to verse 17. Here's what God is to say about those who fear him. He says, they shall be mine. I want to be the Lord's, amen? I mean, I don't want to find myself on the opposing side of the ultimate God of the universe. I want to be his. And what's he say about being his? He says, in the day when I make up my treasured possession... I want to be a part of Christ's treasured possession. And he says, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And he says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He goes on to say this, verse 2 of chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so for those who fear the Lord, he says, here are the blessings that come from that. You will be mine. You will be a treasured possession. I, um, I, I look over you and I hold you and I keep you. But then God gives a firm warning to those who don't fear him. Uh, Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And that's judgment language. It's judgment language that we see consistent throughout the Bible when God is talking about final judgment that will happen to those who've rejected his lordship and who are persisting to live in sin and live um, uh, in evil. And this is what's at stake. For those who fear the Lord, blessings of salvation, of being with God in relationship forever, of those who do not fear the Lord and reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ, a judgment that will come when the day of the Lord comes. Now, I recognize that there's a great danger to hear a sermon like today and to walk out with some really bad application of it. And here's what would just be like so awful if at the end of a sermon about fearing the Lord and at the end of a sermon about like, hey, one day the day of the Lord's going to come and Jesus is going to come back and he's going to enact his ways. Like the worst thing that I could look at us and say at the end of a sermon like this is, okay, now go be better God-fearers. Go fear God better. Let's go, church. Fear the Lord. We chuckle at that because we know something about ourselves. We can't just work up on our own like a greater fear of the Lord. We know we don't have it in us. We know that we... We tried in our own might at times in our life, and we just find ourselves flat on our face over and over and over again. And so what is proper application from this passage about, okay, what, how does fear of the Lord, how does a fear of the Lord take root in our heart? We know the application can't just be like fear God better. Here's how a fear of the Lord takes root in our heart. All of the book of Malachi including this passage, isn't ultimately about 
How do you begin to just change your behavior so that you can be a more moral person? All of the book of Malachi has been pointing to, hey, one day I'm going to send a forerunner, and that forerunner is going to make a way for my Savior, and his name's going to be Jesus, and he's going to come. The way of fear of the Lord it takes root in our heart comes through the moment when we see that we are separated from God in our sin, and we are in great need of a Savior, and we respond in faith to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ becomes the ruler and reigner of the, on the throne of our heart. And then when that happens, when we know Jesus Christ in relationship, God promises to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit in our heart. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work and rule and reign and do the work in our heart, a fear of the Lord begins to grip our heart. That good and purifying and refining and awesome and reverent fear in such a way that we begin to pursue holiness and righteousness in our life and we begin to run away and reject the persisting of sin and evil in our life. And that's why we can't just say at the end of this sermon and at the end of this whole series on Malachi, okay, Let's just work harder to do better. All of this book has been pointing to the coming of a Savior. You know what happens after Malachi? What happens after Malachi? Like flip the page. Right? There's like 400 years of silence that come. That like one, when you flip the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Bible, that's a big page flip. That's 400 years worth of a page flip right there, okay? And there's this time of silence. But then God breaks the silence in the most glorious breaking of the silence possible. And he brings the Savior to the world. And that Savior is calling us into relationship. And so if you're here and you don't know that Savior, you walked in not knowing Jesus, uh, today is the day for you to respond in faith, to say, I, I don't want those things that it talks about for those who don't fear the Lord and deny walking with God in relationship. I want the blessings of salvation that come through knowing Jesus. Uh, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the day you can call on the name of Jesus to be saved. But all, for us in the room who did walk in here knowing Jesus, it's true for us as well. We don't just hear a message on the fear of the Lord and go, okay, now let's go work harder to try to fear God better this week. How do we grow in that fear? We take those roots that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we drive them down deeper. We abide in Christ. We grow closer and closer to him. We let his ways become our ways. We want to know him more and more. We want to walk more intimately with him. And as we do that, the Lord works in us the proper fear of him that should be there. The answer is the same for us. We abide in Christ, and in that abiding, the Lord works in us a fear of the Lord. So church, just stand uh, to your feet right now. We're going to close out this, service, or this series um, by just singing.
Uh, this is just a, a prayer uh, of response that we're going to sing to the Lord here in these moments. But um, we said when this series started um, that the book of Malachi was going was gonna to get all up in our grill and step on our toes. Did it deliver? Huh? And um, the Lord called us out on some stuff. And these wake-up calls that the Lord was uh, given to his people then, I think we found, um, man, I know I found, my heart needed some of these wake-up calls in my own life here. And so we're just going to sing kind of as our closing prayer to this series, um, just kind of a, a bit of an older Christian song, Give Us Clean Hands, Give Us Pure Hearts, Let Us Not Lift Our Souls to Another. And there are certain sermon series that just have a more um, repentance focus to them, and this was one of those. And I think the Lord has probably revealed to us some places in our heart where we don't have clean hands and we don't have a pure heart. And so as we sing this, let's just make this our prayer. Lord, give us clean hands. Not me trying to wash my hands, but Lord, uh, leaning more into Jesus, who is the one who has cleansed me and rode me in his righteousness and then gives me a heart that wants to pursue after his righteousness. And so let's just sing this together, church. It's the prayer to close our series here.